You may be seated. And I invite you to turn in Luke chapter 22. Uh, Dustin asked me to preach on this particular text this morning. He's anxious to keep moving through Luke. He'll be here the next couple of Sundays to do that. And I'll be back in three weeks to take another section of this 22nd chapter of Luke. The setting of our text, uh, Jesus has invited his disciples uh, to an upper room in Jerusalem uh, for his last Passover meal with his uh, disciples. We knew, learn about that in verses 12 and 13 of Luke chapter 22. Then you'll notice, uh, as was given last uh, week in Destin's message, uh, the Lord's Supper was instituted, verses 14 through 23. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 24. I'd like to read Luke 22, 24 through 30. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. As we come to verse 24, there is a dramatic, even tragic element to this dispute, this quarrel, this big argument among the disciples. Jesus had just dropped his bombshell earlier in verses 21 and 22 about the fact that the betrayer, his betrayer, was in that room. We think of movies and films where the detective calls everybody together and says, the murderer is in this room. Everybody looks around, whoa, it's not me, I don't think it's me. Well, that was the reaction, of course, of the disciples when they heard about that. Uh, it's not me, is it you? It's not me, it's you. Even Judas got into it. Matthew tells us he came to Jesus and said, is it I, Rabbi? And, and Jesus said to him, you have said so. <laughs> you said it. And John indicates that soon thereafter, Judas then left the upper room, leaving Jesus with the other 11 disciples. But then having experienced that, inquiring about the traitor, Soon they switched to this other matter of a dispute, and it had to do with the seating at the upper room. Now, many of you are familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's uh, portrait or painting of the Last Supper, and everybody's on one side of the table. But in Bible times, as I understand it, the table often was a U-shaped kind of thing, and seat number one was sort of a place of honor for the, one of, somebody who had that place. Jesus often sat then at number two, and then number three, four, five, all the way around. And so this dispute happened to be about that. Who will occupy the position of honor at number one? And how will the 12 of us, including Jesus, be arranged around the table? In what order? What rank? Now, if you have ever tried to put together a big dinner, you know sometimes it's difficult to place people. 
And you might have place cards, and somebody will say, oh, no, you don't want to put them together. <laughs> oh, let's put them somewhere else. No, he, yeah, let's put these people. They, want, they know friends of these people. Let's put them over here, but not those. And so sometimes there's a big problem, and that was the problem that they were having here. <clears throat> it was an old debate among the disciples uh, back in Matthew 18, verse 1. The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in Mark chapter 9, 33 and 34, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They're talking about something. And Jesus, of course, he knew what it was, but he wanted to confront them. And he said, What were you talking about? But they kept silent. Why did they keep silent? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And then in Matthew chapter 20, you have the mother of James and John coming to Jesus with a request. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And when the ten heard what this mother was asking, the Bible says they were indignant at the two brothers. So you see the tension that's been building here. We can imagine at some point uh, they approach James and John and says, so you had to get your mommy involved in this, huh? So you could be the greatest? And, and maybe they respond, well, who are you to say that? Don't you want to be the greatest? What about Thomas over there? What about Matthew over there? So this terrible quarrel and argument is going on here. Who will be the greatest, the most honored, the most important? Some of you know about a famous boxer who years ago had this moniker, I am the greatest. And that's what each of those disciples were hoping to be able to say. I am the greatest. And why was this such a big deal for these men? I mean, this matter of seating in that way. Well, they were still under the influence of their Jewish upbringing and their idea, expecting that the Messiah, when he would come, would come and arrive and throw out the political military masters, the Romans. And therefore, Assuming that Jesus would soon be doing this, and I think as they gathered in that room, they still had that very much in their mind, and they envisioned that they would soon have places on his cabinet, and Jesus would actually physically rule in Jerusalem, and they would have positions, uh, honored positions of assistants, uh, ministers of state, uh, ambassadorships, special responsibilities. And so they were kind of excited about this meal here because they thought this is when Jesus is going to really indicate what he's going to do. Finally, our moment is here. This is exciting. Look at these men. Look at these men in that room with Jesus. How deeply seated their ambition and their love of power. How frail and weak they were. Their self-seeking materialistic expectations seeking preferential treatment, even though they themselves were part of this very privileged circle that Jesus had called together. But especially how humiliating for these men in their attitude about who will be the greatest. What a time and place to do it. Just as Jesus was approaching his death, laboring them to help them get ready for that, he was about ready to lay down his life for them, what were they doing? Giving attention to their own needs. Yes, they too needed Jesus to die for them, to take upon himself the penalty of sin they deserved, even as we deserve that as well. The death of Jesus was so very important to them 
and so very important to people like us even today. Well, as we come to verses 25 and 26, there's time for Jesus to quench this quarrel, to extinguish the fire of this debate, this terrible argument that was going on. His response was not a sharp one, rather a mild rebuke for the arguing. Uh, Jesus seems more discouraged rather than irritated about his men and what they have been doing. So we can imagine him getting their attention something like this. Men, men, quiet, quiet. Why are you acting like this? You're acting like the kings of the Gentiles. They seek these kinds of things. And how do they rule? First of all, they lord it over their subjects. And then they love this title of benefactor. In the Greek-influenced world of that day, it was a custom for Gentile rulers to adopt that title. The Greek is eurygentes, benefactor term of flattery, compliment for the kings. Even though they were harsh rulers in some cases, nevertheless, they would take upon themselves that title. And this has been true down through history, even before this incident before us, who was very well known in the world, Alexander the Great. And then we come down through history, and what do we find? Your Excellency, the Ambassador Extraordinary of His Majesty, Richard the Good, and I like this one, Suleiman the Magnificent. Then we come down to our day, His Holiness, the most very reverend. Not too long ago, a Senate committee was meeting, and the one being interviewed made the mistake of referring to the senator as ma'am. And she said, excuse me, I am a senator, please Use that title for me. You see, it's a common of our sinful state down through the, down through the years. But having said verse number 25, we come to verse 26. But not so with you. The Greek word order is, with you, not so. But there's also another little Greek word in there with a pronunciation of something like de, translated here, but. as a force of however. So Jesus is drawing a very strong contrast. That's the way the, the Gentile rulers are seeking those titles. But however, with you, not so. Men, how many times have I told you my kingdom is not a materialistic physical one? It's a spiritual kingdom. Therefore, you should not expect titles and pomp and power and adulation and worldly greatness. He goes on in verse 26, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Interesting. According to both Jewish and Near Eastern ethical standards, the youngest was supposed to be the one who was most humble and helpful. The hardest labor was usually committed to the youngest member of society. He was the one least of honor. You remember when Samuel came to the house of Jesse, and the Lord had directed him saying, the next king of Israel is going to be from Jesse's family, one of his boys. 
And Jesse praised them from the oldest down to the, the youngest. And uh, each one, the Lord told Samuel, not him, not him, not him. And so Samuel said, are these all your boys? And what was Samuel's, uh, Jesse's response, uh, response? Well, there's the youngest boy. He's taking care of the sheep. Samuel said, bring him to me. And there was a case where the youngest became the one who was honored in serving the Lord in his way. So the, other, the older people were regarded as those honorable, held in high respect, and there's a certain sense in which that is proper. They were considered great. And they were to be rulers over the younger, who would not expect any special privileges. So what is Jesus doing here? He's turning everything upside down. Verse 27, he uses an illustration of a contrast, something I think we can understand. Who's the greater, one who reclines the table or one who serves? We bring it up to modern terms. We go into a restaurant. We expect that the customers will be the greatest in the sense of being the most important. The waiters, or we call them sometimes what? Servers. The servers are there to serve the customers. So that was true even back in Jesus' day. Who is the greater? The one who reclines, the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Man, your task in my kingdom is not to glory and greatness, but to serve me and serve others. As their acknowledged leader, he pointed to himself, and properly so. Mark 10, 45, after James and, John, James and John's mother came with their request, soon thereafter Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, to pay the penalty that need to be paid, pay the price, should I say, so that they might be delivered from their sinful state. The disciples needed that as much as you and I even need it today. Either it had just happened before our incident or after when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, that very well-known incident, which nobody was ready to wash anybody's feet, so Jesus said, I'll do it. He took a towel, got down, and washed their feet. That was an example of him serving others. Now, I want you to imagine the thoughts of these men when Jesus said these words. I'm sure their, their heads kind of went down like this. They didn't want to look him in the eye. A sense of shame, of embarrassment, their dreams shattered, fear of disgrace. Perhaps even in their hearts and their mind, they thought they expected Jesus to even stand up and say, Men, I think it's time for you to leave. I had very high hopes for you. But no, no. You're fleeing after greatness. I need men who won't be doing that, who instead will serve me and serve others. Please go. I'll hopefully get some other men that are willing to do those things. What a terrible moment for these men. Until... 
Come to verse 28. And what do we find at the beginning of verse 28? Well, in the English Standard Version, it begins with the word you. But I think the New King James Version has it correct. But you. Yes, we are back to the same phrase we noticed up there in verse 26. With you, not so. Here Jesus says, with you, things are different. Remember the idea of that word translated but is however. And when he said that little word, we can see the disciples lifting their head a little bit. However. You've been in a conversation with someone and they're kind of sharing with you some bad news, it's not good, and all of a sudden they say, however, or but, and oh, there's a little bit of good news coming. I think that's what Jesus does here at verse 28. Men, you have failed me in many, many ways, including this big dispute, this big quarrel you had, you've had. Yet despite all of that, Despite all of your failures in seeking to follow me in the right way, despite all of your weaknesses, all of your pride, all of your seeking for greatness, still there is one thing that still gives me hope for you. One thing that continues to be a great encouragement to me. Verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. There's a Greek word called, uh, it's a compound verb. Diamemen kotas. A compound verb meaning persistent loyalty. Continual loyalty. You are those who have stayed with me, even to this moment. Now, of course, the you does not include Judas, who had already left the room, but the other eleven. Man, you, you've stayed with me in, in my trials, my sufferings, my humiliations, my attacks from Satan and from the wicked world, the ridicule that I've endured. You've been part of that. And I think we have to stop and pause for a moment and say, despite all the weaknesses of these disciples, and often when we look at them, we see ourselves. But there's one consistent thing about them. They hung in there for three years. They were still with them. And Jesus commends them for that. So their initial faith still need, was beginning to need and show more faith, especially a saving faith. We're not sure whether even at that moment how many or any, any of them were truly converted, but they were on the way as the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts. This is but a step in which Jesus challenges them how important it is to remain firm and your faith fixed on myself. But Jesus has more good news than simply, hey, you've been very loyal to me. I appreciate that. That's wonderful. Look at what he does in verse 29. I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. The Greek word for assign is diatithemai, from which we get the word diatheke, meaning covenant. And what Jesus is doing here is saying, I'm establishing a covenant, a binding agreement with you men, this very night, through which I'm going to assign special directions for your future service for me. Even as I was given my assignment by my Heavenly Father, 
and continue to follow that, so I'm going to assign you something very special in my kingdom and how you're going to help me in the future. By kingdom here, again, remember, it's a spiritual rule, not a material, uh, material property of some sort. And I would understand this, verse 29, this would be the uh, working out of his kingdom on earth. After Jesus ascended to heaven, he left his men behind, and they were the foundation of his kingdom on earth, which has developed, of course, into uh, the church. In Acts chapter 17, at uh, the incident in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas and other Christians were being hauled before the magistrates. And the magistrates, one of them said, these men have turned the world upside down. And isn't that true? We can look back now on history and see the tremendous effect these 11 plus Matthias, who became the 12th apostle, plus Saul, who became Paul, the so-called 13th apostle, those men were the foundation for what has become the Christian church and why we are here and able to be here today in this place around the word of God. But Jesus has some more encouragement in verse 30, our last verse of our text. I'm, I'm assigning you this kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I would understand verse 29, the kingdom is the earthly kingdom. Verse 30 is the heavenly kingdom to come. And God's, uh, Jesus' blessings upon them. And the picture there in verse 30 is of them sitting around a table, you know, as they were doing that in the upper room. But this is going to be a far more joyful occasion. The whole I emphasize here is it's a joyful occasion sitting around with the Lord Jesus. We can remember many times over the, our years when we have been around the dinner table, and that's a time of happiness and joy, and sharing humor and jokes and relaxing. That's the picture that we have here in verse number 30. It's interesting that in Matthew's uh, parallel uh, passage in Matthew 19, verse 28, he says, in the new world, in the new heavens, in the new earth. Also, the Greek of that term is in the regeneration. Now, the only other time in the New Testament that that word occurs is in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul writes, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There the word has the idea of being born again, the new birth with a new nature. Well, I think back in our text here, Jesus is referring to the time there will be the new heavens and the new earth, the new regeneration, if you will. And that is where the kingdom will reach its final peak there. There's a reference to thrones, uh, emblems of power, dignity, and honor. I don't think of a judicial, the disciples are up there as a judicial group at a table and people are coming into Jerusalem and being, but this is more of a broad, in some sense, they are going to be involved with Jesus, the final, the great judge at the great final day in judging the world. And again, things are going to be turned upside down. Now the world's against the church. And that time, time will be, the church will be vindicated before the world. I think that's all involved there. <clears throat> 
James, interestingly, uh, in his book, he begins it writing to them, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That was the scattering of uh, persecuted uh, Jews in those back in the first century. And they're referred to as the 12 tribes, but he's referring to the church. So in a sense, we're part of the 12 tribes of Israel that has become the church of Jesus Christ. It's possible that the 12 uh, apostles will have special responsibilities because of their, their, what they did on earth. Uh, they faced great persecution. They endured all kinds of hardships. Most of them were, many of them were martyred for their faith. But in all the work that they did, it could be they have a special honor. But in Revelation 3, 21, we read, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So I think it involves all of God's people. Eventually, then, these men would reach a place of rest and blessing for their heavenly reward. Now, I'd like to conclude with three particular applications. First of all, this idea of the greatest. I would ask you, it's a rhetorical question, nobody tried to answer it. What greatness are you seeking? As you think of your future, particularly those of you who are children, young people, and thinking what you're going to do with your life, looking for some great thing to do? Well, the one who is truly great, according to the word of God, is the one who willingly does the most menial of tasks. The word, the watchword of all true greatness is not privilege, but devotion to the Lord in serving him and serving others. That's greatness. You elders and deacons, what you are doing as you serve this church is a great thing. You Sunday school teachers who labor from week to week when Sunday school is in operation, what a great thing you are doing. Those of you that work in the nursery, a great thing. Those of you that all do all kinds of unnoticed things in the operation of this church, in this facility, great things. But not just the church. You parents, you have the responsibility of bringing your children up in the nurtured admonition of the Lord. What a great work that is. Children, when you obey your parents, that's a great thing. A great thing. Faithfulness and, in- and integrity in your workspace, in the office, in the field, in the factory, wherever it might be. A great thing. When you make a visit, a phone call, or write a letter to a needy person. What great things those are. A simple, kind deed shown not only to a Christian, but even to unbelievers. A great thing. Secondly, the matter of final rewards. Surely Jesus was giving that in verses 29, but especially verse 30. Think of our OPC missionaries, both at home and abroad. What they have given up, what they have to go through, many times having to do menial tasks. Things that maybe you would not feel like you doing. They do it. I heard about a missionary who came home from many years in a foreign mission field. 
And he's on an ocean liner, and as they pulled into the dock, uh, he was aware there were many dignitaries and celebrities on the ship. And he could see there was a band over here playing, and there were streamers and balloons and all kinds of things there. People yelling and would say, welcome home, welcome home. And, and he looked at them, got off the ship. He turned to see the group meeting him. It was just a little tiny group from his church. And as he walked toward them, he, he kind of looked at this despondency. It was, what? They're having this great homecoming. Hardly anybody's here to greet me. And one of the members of his church saw that. Came to him and he said, My friend, don't forget, you're not home yet. I think we need to keep that in mind as we serve the Lord. We're not home yet. We have things to do here in the earthly kingdom, serve Him. But a heavenly kingdom is still to come. Jesus will say to those who have been faithful to Him, Well done, thou good and faithful. Servant. Finally, we need to say something about suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Because Jesus, in his position as suffering servant, came to give his life to offer his life in such that great example for us of service for the Lord. During his public ministry, he indicated that over and over and over again. John 13, washing the disciples' feet. His words in Mark 10, 45, they came not to be served but to serve. Philippians 2, 4 and through 7, let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience through his suffering. Therefore, it was with the humble awareness of his role as servant that that night in the upper room, he looked around that little circle of men and gave them words of encouragement as well as rebuke, words of promise. And surely in their future days as they served him, this incident in the upper room would remain in their memories. They would be enduring suffering for the one who suffered for them. So we must not seek worldly greatness, but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. And everything we do in this life for the Lord will be followed by heavenly wards from God's grace alone. Some way he will bless his people, everything we need when we finally are home. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we pray that as we leave here today and go to our homes, to our places of employment, as we meet people in our neighborhood, that we will exhibit the servant attitude of our Savior, that we will be willing to do the most menial of tasks for his glory. Through Jesus we pray.